VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Gadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm reviews editor Sherlyn Lowe. Today, we'll be chatting about the latest news from Computex 2021, which is still happening. We're not in Taipei like we normally are to go cover this thing, <sighs> but there's a lot of virtual stuff happening. Yeah, sigh. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you more about that, Sherlyn, yes. uh, in a bit. Uh, but yeah, we'll have some news from NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel, and uh, you know a- any other fun stuff. And we've got a bunch of other small news bits that happened this week that seemed really exciting too. And uh, yeah, we'll be chatting with our podcast producer, Ben Elman, throughout the show too. So hey, Ben, how's it going? Hello. Be sure to stick around for the end of this episode where our managing editor, Terrence O'Brien, chats with Alessandro Cortini from Nine Inch Nails about developing a new instrument, the Strega. As always, please subscribe to the Engadget podcast on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes if you enjoy the show. That's always helpful. And you can always uh, check us out, broadcasting live every Thursday morning around 10 a.m. Eastern, typically. You can also drop us a note at podcastandgadget.com. We'd love to take your questions. We can mention it on the show even in the future. If you want to record a voice memo or something, too, shoot it to that email. Maybe we can plug it into the show. Let's get straight to Computex. And uh, let me just say, Sherlyn, I am I'm very sad. I know this is your favorite show. It is my favorite show. I think it's our favorite show because Computex is a show that both you and I have been covering together for the past couple of years now. We fly 16 to 18 hours from New York to Taipei. We spend a whole week in Taipei mm-hmm. and we're just surrounded like by PC hardware, but also surrounded by great food and, you know, the beautiful city of Taipei and insane just weather. being in a very different place. And insane insane weather, which I love. Um, <laughs> I do not. I know you hate Sherlyn. <laughs> Just super, super humid weather. But the whole thing about Computex, which you guys may not get when we write about it and when we talk about it, is that it is an experience in Southeast Asia. And I just miss that whole experience. So being you know up late covering news that's happening remotely is not nearly as fun. And also, uh, yeah, you were on vacation, Sherlyn, so you missed out on a lot of this fun time, too. Yeah, I normally type, type uh, Computex is like kind of my trip mm-hmm. back to Asia every year. And so yeah. not doing it this year is... It's not just like a work like thing that I'm missing out on, but also, you know, family time and uh, family time. Yeah. So well, it's been two years. We didn't even go I last know. year either. There was no Computex last two year. Two so. year. But virtual Computex, uh, we're still, there was still mm-hmm. a lot of news. But you know what surprised me is that like the amount, the sheer amount of news that came out of like chip companies, but fa- hardly any mm-hmm. other company in my opinion. Like oh, usually yeah. I have more stuff in my purview at Computex to cover. I, I have Acer, Asus stuff. To, yeah, to you have more systems on. to cover. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like there's a little bit, not so much of the hands-on experience at least, right? On the video side of things. We, we sure. hear a lot of press release sure. stuff. But anyway, I'm happy to get down yeah. to it. I feel like in terms of news, this was more of like half of Computex is like PC components and the, the nitty-gritty hardware stuff that both Sherlyn and I really like. 
Um, and not just systems, not just like consumer gadgets. This one, since it's virtual, I think it's it's just mainly components. So let's start with some news from NVIDIA, which I think was the biggest news of this event. Uh, they announced the new RTX 3080 Ti and 3070 Ti desktop GPUs. These things are massive and powerful. I have a review up of the 3080 Ti on the site right now. They're also really expensive, or at least the T the 3080 is. Uh, it is eleven ninety nine. $1,199. That's compared to the plain 3080, which is $699. And so what's the you difference? Know, that is $500 more. So the big difference is it's just a lot more powerful. So the uh, I think the way a lot of people are describing this is that it is sort of like the RTX 3090, which is NVIDIA's insane uh, $1,499 video card, which uh, uh, I can't even imagine having that in my system. Um, but it is sort of like... So a lot of the power from that chip scaled down to the cooler and hardware that more resembles the, the RTX 3080. So it is faster. And I definitely noticed that in my testing, especially when it comes to like ray tracing performance, you know, for a game like Control, where I am always just trying to crank how hard my system can go, uh, this thing was able to run Control in 4K with NVIDIA's DLSS technology, rendering everything at 1440p. And DLSS sort of like takes low resolution textures, it uses AI processing to upscale them to a better resolution. So it was able to do that plus high uh, ray tracing settings. So that's like all the visual niceties, just really beautiful graphical flourishes and still run the game above 60 FPS. It was like 70 to 80 FPS. That is kind of remarkable because Control is just like, it is a demanding game. It is sort of like the crisis of our time, uh, crisis in terms of the game crisis. Uh, this thing handles ray tracing so well, but I think in other things, in some benchmarks, um, and certainly in games like Destiny 2, the performance bump was like 10% over the RTX 3080. And I don't think that is worth a $500 premium. You know, like it, it, it is a tough thing. And as we're talking about all this stuff, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, Sherlyn, but the video card market is insane. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is insane right now. So whatever prices NVIDIA is putting out. Yeah. Well, yeah, all the all the PC yes. and chip markets are insane, yeah. but GPUs in particular, oh, yeah, right? More. We are in a world where a card that's supposed to be $500, like yeah. the RTX 3070, is now selling on eBay for $1,500. It's crazy. You know? Everything is out of stock at every store, and even if you can find a GPU in a store, you're still going to be paying above uh, market price, basically. So this is a bad time to buy GPUs. Uh, NVIDIA is saying this card will be $1199, uh, maybe for the lucky few who can get it early. But if you're buying it later, if you're buying it from a reseller, you're going to be paying a lot of money for that. I've seen people pay over, I think, like $2,000 for the RTX 2080 Ti, which is several years old right now, but still really powerful. Um, just, just a bad time. The GPU market is sort of like a fantasy right now. We talk about Can these prices. Can we check back in about why yeah. that is actually? So a few episodes ago, I was stupidly thinking that, okay, it was cryptocurrency that yep. was still controlling the price of that market. That is not the case. Again, that's probably not the case. Is it that it's just production slowdowns because of the pandemic? What's it's everything. It's everything. So it is production slowdowns. It is increased demand from gamers who are still like reeling from not being able to get a GPU because of all the crypto miners. These new cards and a lot of NVIDIA's new hardware is hash limited, which means you can't use them for a, a lot of cryptocurrencies. So that is one way to like keep them out of miners' hands. But they still can't make enough. 
scalpers are still out there buying these things immediately and reselling them at a really high price. So it's like the market is just really unbalanced right now. And I think we got to wait maybe to the end of the year until things kind of sort themselves out. So that's that's just the thing. You know, I'm talking about all these GPUs. I'm, I'm reviewing these things. It is weird to be reviewing a thing where once it actually hits the market, will probably be much more expensive than the price the company is saying. And we mentioned all this in our reviews. You know, it, it is a tough thing to juggle. It's still news that these things exist. It's not like the, the cards aren't made up. It's more like the pricing is made up, basically. Um, or at least the pricing is determined by the market, which is volatile. So is it possible that um, there's the other part of like the stock market is really hot and some people think that it might be because mm -hmm. people are putting their stimulus checks into meme stocks or something. Is it possible that there are also <laughs> just tons of gamers who've been saving their stimulus for these new graphics cards? That's I mean, that's that's maybe a possibility and maybe that's going to allow some gamers to pay a lot more than they should for these GPUs. But we can't lay everything at the hands of the stimulus checks. Like those are very small amounts of money compared to the size of this market and like the scale scalpers work on these days. So I, like from what we're seeing, that is going to have a bigger effect. But anyway, uh, we did uh, on Engadget's upscaled series on YouTube. Uh, Chris Schott did a breakdown of these new NVIDIA GPUs and kind of what they mean. So go check that out. Um, it's definitely worth watching. I'm really digging the 3080 Ti. I'm not digging this retail price. And I think for a lot of people, you know, TLDR, I think the RTX 3080 is the better deal when it comes to a powerful GPU at 699. Honestly, the 3070, which was supposed to be a 499 card, is really powerful, really like performs really well. That thing is like the best balance of price and performance. I, I wish Can these cards were selling yeah. at their retail prices. You cannot find it at the retail <laughs> price. You can't find it at all. Don't buy a GPU now, folks, if yeah. you can if you can avoid it. My favorite um, my favorite it, analogy mm -hmm. for all of this has been that like graphics card nerds finally understand what it feels like <laughs> to be a sneakerhead. And like they might as well make like Nike sure. style apps for these cards, like for like fresh drops. And like the next thing you know, NVIDIA is gonna have like a physical retail store and people are gonna be lining up around a block. <laughs> for like a card the way you would for see people card. yeah try to buy can you imagine like people have games? been lining up mm -hmm. i can i can <laughs> people have been you know the way sneakerheads like just like lay lay up like a hundred boxes of shoes and be like look what i got i know um people definitely line up i've seen photos online of people just like showing off all the cards they got and be like yeah i'm gonna sell this for 500 percent, you know over what i paid or something uh it is it is a mess right now one thing i'd recommend and let's we're going to move on to AMD side of things. But if you're building a new computer and your GPU is just kind of like this hole in your like uh, in your like setup right now that you can't fill, you could consider one of AMD's new APUs, which are their you know their their CPUs that have a bit of Radeon graphics on them. And uh, at Computex, they also announced like two of the APUs, two of the five thousand series APUs are going to be on sale in August. So. That's going to be nice. And I think like that, that is a way for you to like build a computer, be able to plug in the monitor, play a simple game if you wanted to, but just basically build a computer um, and then wait, just sit there and wait for a GPU. Like that is the thing. But hey, folks, if you 
if you can't have like if you can wait please wait because this market is insane i think the only way to ensure you get a new card is if you buy a complete system mm -hmm. and that is something i've seen a lot of other people do too it's like yeah question are there a lot of new yes. systems with this new card coming out or being announced because i think i saw a whole slew of news go up around monday or tuesday morning there were there was a lot of news i mean not with uh not with the nvidia cards like okay. we haven't desktops we don't so the way we cover desktops really, and notebooks yeah. is i think really different yeah we don't we don't really look at desktops because it is really easy for a company to just roll out a new desktop case mm -hmm. and slap in you know a video card or something on right. it so but for a notebook it is a lot harder and it takes a lot more power and yeah. uh by the way speaking of notebooks i think it is really cool that amd announced uh they're getting more serious about mobile graphics which is really interesting. They announced the Radeon RX 6000M series GPUs, uh, which I, I think this is the first time AMD has really taken on the high end when it comes to mobile gaming. Um, because typically that's been NVIDIA's domain. And I, I, even with last year's chips or last two year's chips, the 5000 series, those things debuted on the MacBook Pro. They debuted, you know, I reviewed it on the MacBook Pro 16 inch. They're great for workhorse PCs, but they were never gaming GPUs. So I think things are going to be really interesting now. Uh, wh what do you think, Shirlin? Like, are you excited by the idea of, you know, AMD and Radeon Graphics being a bigger player in, in notebooks in general? I'm, I, I'm more just kind of like, and we'll get to this later, I guess, but I'm more kind of just looking at Intel struggling around with a Xeon and like all of its other graphics options going like, you know, this will probably spur the overall chip market. <laughs> you to mean try XE? Harder. XE? XE. Yeah. I said Xeon, but in my head. Xeon is like, like server chips. That's yeah. what I call, yeah, it's X, the Intel yeah. Iris XE. <laughs> I just filled it out with Xeon. Anyway. Uh, you know, yeah, no, I think obviously I always well, think that competition. I'll talk about Intel. I'll talk about Intel soon oh, okay. because yeah, they do have some there. stuff coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but hey, hey, we're going to have a review soon. I have the, it's sitting right next to me right now. I have one of the first computers with the Radeon 6800M mobile graphics. It is the Asus RG Strix G15, mm. which is a big honkin' fella. It is like a six pound gaming laptop. So it is like a serious gaming laptop. I think typically. We, I, I like to review the ones under five pounds. I like to review the gaming laptops that are trying to be like thin and light and do everything. But it is really nice to have a system that's just like, I don't care about being thin. Just, you know, give me all the power. And uh, this thing is super powerful. So I, I'm interested in reviewing this and testing this further and seeing how this works. I'll also note, there's like one, there, there are a couple other advantages of having Radeon graphics, AMD's Radeon graphics, and AMD CPUs in the same system. Uh, they announced like Smart Shift. We, they have actually talked about this before. They have Smart Shift and Smart Access technology. Smart Shift basically lets the computer balance where power is going in the system. So it can more, more intelligently send power to the CPU or send power to the GPU. That leads to more performance. Or um, the other one is smart access. That gives the CPU direct access to the memory that is sitting on the GPU. And these GPUs tend to have a lot of like VRAM on their own too. So AMD is saying like that alone, that feature alone can lead to a 10% performance bump of running that hardware without smart shift. So I think these little like incremental gains are really nice too. Uh, you know, with these GPUs, your laptops are basically turning into the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X, you know, because those machines are basically AMD CPUs with Radeon, with Radeon graphics, you know, so we're just kind of breaking all that down. I think it's going to be a really exciting year 
for gaming notebooks? Yeah. Do you, do you like, I, yeah, is this something you're taking a closer look at, Trillin? I mean, you look. Want, do you want to be a gaming notebook person? I, I mean, <laughs> the the thinner they get, right? Five pounds is still like not my realm, right? The, the laptops I review are like that, one point That's portable pounds. for gaming, yeah. I know, yeah. I know. So like with what, fans and cooling systems and whatever, mm-hmm. um, obviously they're hunking beasts that, you know, back in the day when I used to tote laptops around mm-hmm. in the purse, those were not for me. Now, though, I live, bro, so I can probably take on your five-pound machines. I also think that when it comes to gaming, of all the different types of, you know, platforms there, are PC versus console, Mm -hmm. I've just been more inclined towards PC. Even though I think, like, a controller, the controls are better with the proper, like, console controller. You can use controllers on PCs. You can always link one up. I have the Stadia one, which we shall not talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, No, no, but I I just don't play that many games on PC at the moment. Mm -hmm. Other than, and this is a fun fact, I just learned Settlers of Catan, a board game that I can also play online. So that is me, PC gaming, (laughs) League of Legends, and Catan. Mm -hmm. So... I, I don't do, think I need yeah, yeah. AMD's power for that. <laughs> Maybe. Well, so who knows? Like, so we've also covered and we're going to talk more about Intel, too. But we've talked about like Intel's XE graphics, you mm-hmm. know, and that is their new onboard built in integrated graphics. And maybe you don't need a full dedicated GPU. Maybe you just need a little little something that can let you play. Yeah, they're like integrated Catan graphics. Or the Sims or something. Right. Yeah. So that's all. I think that's getting better, too. I think maybe AMD is going to be better about getting uh it's radeon apus too or the ryzen apus again ryzen cpu plus radeon graphics in a single chip putting that together um you know that could be useful for laptops as well we've seen that work really well over the last few years basically it's an exciting time to get a laptop bad time to start building a desktop how about that let me yeah. let me put that out there uh just because these markets are so crazy right now uh when it comes to video cards at least on the laptop side, you're not paying crazy prices. And the hardware is like new and interesting, you know. Speaking of laptops, I just want to quickly shout out Intel announced two new U series chips. And these are um they have different lines, right? Like they have the they have the U series, which are for like ultra portables and super thin and light computers, and they have the H series chips, which are more powerful and those are going to be the ones you find in gaming laptops and like workhorse machines these new u-series chips they finally have some uh they still top out at four cores uh but they finally have one that hits five gigahertz on a single core so a bit of a performance bump there that is intel trying really hard to compete with like amd's latest ryzen uh 5000 series chips and really now the war in computers in general like both on desktops and laptops but AMD is really making a play for power, you know, like especially when it comes to uh, multi-core performance and things like that. So the war is heating up. I think our I, computers are going to get a lot more interesting. Are you excited by any of this? I I, I do want to say, like, I think that a lot of the time when we go to Computex in the last few years, at least I've noticed this pattern of like companies trying to, you know, take intel's lunch and uh, yeah amd yeah. has been doing it for years and seems like it's finally <laughs> there like you know it used to be like oh i'll take an appetizer oh, i'll take a snack and i was going for the full main course 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and in usually when we're at uh, Computex, some of the stuff that I cover at least is five G stuff and um, Qualcomm. Qualcomm is one of the companies that usually has a big showing there um, at Computex. I'm trying to uh, just make sure I can talk about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see also Qualcomm go for Intel's desktop or laptop. You know. Business by trying mm-hmm. to announce PCs, cards for PCs based on ARM, and I just bring it up because I think my mm-hmm. mind went right to like you can't talk laptop chips without talking about Apple's <laughs> M1 anymore nowadays. For and, sure, for sure. And once we talk about that, like the idea is, will these cards that just got announced by AMD, for example, I mean the ones in the laptop category, anyway, can they compare to Apple's M1? Do you think there is potential? Do you think Apple is still going. Well, it's like it's very different things, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what we like about the M1 is that it is great, fast, efficient ARM hardware. Apple has its own graphics cores that they plugged in there, so it is that's actually very similar to AMD's APUs. You know, their chips that have combined everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is like a very different thing. But certainly, I, I do think the PC industry in general, and we'll talk about this when we get to the new Windows news. I think the PC industry in general needs to start taking ARM hardware and Mm -hmm. ARM software more seriously because that is like the new standard that Apple put out there, you know? Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I think we're going to see more. I just don't know if uh, it's coming on the PC side as quickly as it is on Apple. By PC, I meant kind of like Windows. It definitely... Yeah, yeah, because PCs are so many things, right? Apple is a single company and it can like lay down a rule and be like, yes. we're going to move to this. You yes. know, everyone's doing this. Um, yeah, that's the benefit of controlling both the hardware and software side of the equation. It is much harder for the rest of the PC market where, yeah, Microsoft has the software. There's so many developers that don't want to listen to what Microsoft is doing. There's so many competing different hardware things too. Like the, the way I think of these companies intel nvidia and amd it's just like a triad of frenemies yeah you know like it is it is all like oh i'm gonna shake your hand while i have a gun pointed to your head and i have like a knife i'm holding in my foot pointed at another enemy because they're always like fighting Mm -hmm. but also always working together so it's very confusing you know this Sherlyn. like it is it is a weird thing. Um, we, just a couple of years ago. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, don't forget that that uh, commercial we were talking about, Intel's commercial, just because it's such a frenemy pagro move, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago at CES, Intel and AMD announced they were working together on a chip. They, re- they put Radeon Graphics on a chip alongside uh, Intel's, I think it was 8th or 9th gen CPUs. It was a single chip that showed up in Nooks. It showed up in some, you know, a handful of computers. Then they ended that immediately once Intel got its own graphics capabilities. You know, also once Intel stole uh, <laughs> stole away the head of graphics from uh, AMD Radeon. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's all sorts of drama going on here. Intel is hard at work at building its own like dedicated GPU. We've seen like examples of that. We've seen their integrated GPUs kind of like get better and better over the last few years. So the XE graphics are actually pretty good. Um, But yeah, everybody is both fighting together. Uh, Intel sold its 5G modem technology, right, to Apple. But they also announced that they're working together with MediaTek uh, uh, on like a 5G thing that can be plugged into computer. It is all very confusing. So anyway, that was another part of the Intel news. Basically, Intel and MediaTek have a 5G M.2 module 
that PC makers can just plug into their laptops and uh, boom, you got you got 5G. Good for I mean, which good I, for them. Good for them. I don't I don't care about sub six gigahertz, you know, five or sub, yeah, is it sub megahertz. Six. I don't care about sub six mm-hmm. 5G, really, mm-hmm. but that's all they're going to be able to do. Yeah, that to me is like mm-hmm. until you get to millimeter wave, the gains are not that obvious. And MediaTek doesn't seem to have Qualcomm's muscle when it comes to millimeter wave and not to mention mm-hmm. all the tech in between. So we'll see. OK, that's it for Computex news. Let's move on to some other news. So another company we always see at Computex is Microsoft. They always have this big keynote that you and I go to this dingy mm-hmm. auditorium, <laughs> I guess, for to listen. Um, but they did it's also... the same. Oh, man, it is the same auditorium. <laughs> every... We just go to every time. It is kind of... Let, let me just say, it is... <laughs> let me paint a picture for you, right? Like, if you imagine, like, it is a major... It reminds me of, like, a college lecture yes! hall. Yes! Because it is like a big thing and they have the pullout the tables, tables yeah. that are next to, you know, next to the seat. So you can sit there and take notes. Thank God, because I'm there usually writing a lot. But yeah, Microsoft usually does this thing where they're like, hey, we're Microsoft and we, you know, we help make PCs possible. They rarely have actual news. Nope. It is always like trying to pull teeth to get news from Microsoft <laughs> yeah. and Computex. But, but uh, yeah, this, so I guess they're not at Computex, but something this else. This week right? they dropped some. They dropped some surprise news. I think you were you were like already mm-hmm. kind of like super wiped from writing so much news for this week for Computex. <laughs> yeah. But Microsoft was like, nope, yeah. we're going to kill Devendra some more by dropping this surprise announcement. Um, well, and it was event. like at the end of my news shift, by the way. Like yeah. I had already written other news that day. Exactly. Ugh. On like, what was it? Wednesday, I believe. But anyhow, so uh, Microsoft is holding another event. Uh, well, I wouldn't say another. I don't think actually Microsoft has held a lot of events throughout the pandemic. Mm-mm. But anyway, on June 24th, Microsoft plans to unveil what it's saying is the next Windows. Or the event name is what's next in Windows, which is very mm-hmm. interesting to hear. I'm not sure if we're going to, because we just heard about the death of Windows 10X. This is a very timely announcement, right? To be like, sure. Windows 10X is dead. What's next? We just had Build. Yeah, yeah, we were just at Build. And that, the Windows 10X news also came out of Build, I mm-hmm, believe, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it's a weird thing. So Satya Nadella, and Build was just last week. This right. is all happening so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Satya Nadella teased last week that, oh, yeah, he, he they are working on the next generation of Windows. He's been using it for a while. He's very <laughs> impressed by it. Uh, the question is, like, where does Microsoft go from here? Right. Because I think Windows 10 was super successful for them. I reviewed that back in 2015, and it mm. is, like, it's a great OS. I use it, like, that's my primary OS every day when I'm not using, like, the work laptop or something because it's a Mac. Mm. Um but the question is like, yeah, what is next? And they talked about dual screens and things like that for Windows 10X. That is kind of dying off mm-hmm. um, or at least being subsumed by the rest of Windows 10. But mm-hmm. I almost wonder, too, if like the next version of Windows is just going to take in a lot of what they were planning for 10X right. and just make it a little more system ready for dual screen devices and other things. Also, maybe they have to just completely rebuild Windows to work better on yeah, ARM. How about probably. that? And I feel like that is... The big push here, like that is, I'm sure Microsoft saw Apple's M1 chips and saw how easily macOS translated to ARM and how their emulation of Intel apps was astoundingly fast. Like Apple is just like out there throwing body blows to Intel and AMD. I do think um, Microsoft had to be like, oh, we (laughs) we gotta do better. Yes, we gotta fix this. Yes, that that is my personal bet. What do you think? 
I, I mean, I think you are right on the money there. I think that um, not just the thing that you said about uh, ARM, mm-hmm. uh, ARM-based Windows being potentially what they're going to show, because like you said, like look, we were just talking about this, like PCs are, you know, trending towards ARM-based processors and software really needs to kind of catch up there. Um, mm-hmm. But also what you said about like just integrating all those dual screen things that 10X was supposed to uh, bring just into the system, like maybe not a tablet mode, but maybe something that auto detects when you've got a dual screen and then just Mm -hmm. the system itself knows how to adapt um let's look at this image microsoft produced by the way like all we have is an image (laughs) of like the windows logo and it looks like a set of windows and light is pouring through it but uh i mean are we digging for clues that that looks like two screens (laughs) that looks like light on the top and light on the bottom sandwiched together i see yeah and uh, for the listener, you can go to Engadget.com to, to yeah. find a DaVinci's article on this, which has the, the picture we're talking about. But The image. They were, let's say Microsoft can be really cheeky at times. I don't yeah. know if you were following the industry when the first Surface was announced, Sherlyn, but they had yeah. this event in LA and they had like the signage all around that just looked like weird, like weird. It looked like a tablet mashed with a keyboard and like they were being <laughs> very obvious about what they were building. So uh, maybe they're being cheeky here too. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> Could be. I I will say I am kind of excited. I don't want another event in my life, but I will say mm-hmm. I am excited to see what when uh, what Microsoft has to show. If 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 just for a better ARM based system, that's it. That's like if, I feel yeah. like that would be so exciting because I will say I have recently just played with another Windows on ARM device and like i mm-hmm. noticed such obvious pauses and delays and i'm just like look i can't even you've reviewed it. all the windows on arm devices we've seen and i even offered to send you some so yeah. that you can like experience yeah. this for yourself and you were like no nah, i've just- tried the surface pro x <laughs> but for the first pro x is really nice hardware but who oh. windows is just not ready to go to go to arm and let's like let's be clear like the problems are right now a lot of software 32-bit and 64-bit software i think just doesn't work well in ARM. They only recently added uh, ARM like compatibility to play to run older apps into into Windows on ARM. It's slow. The App Store stinks. Like they don't have enough developers producing stuff on the App Store. So if you have a Windows machine, your habit is to like go to a company's website, download some software, and try to install it. Can't you can't do that at all? I right. think on the ARM devices, everything has to go through the store. So mm, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing a lot with of work. change is you're getting people to break their habits, and if you don't give them a good yeah. reason to do so, you're not you you're gonna face a lot of resistance, <laughs> and that's why Microsoft has to do better. It's just asking people to change habits, mm-hmm. but it's not provided an app store that's good enough for people to like rethink how they yeah. install apps. We'll it's see. so hard, though. Yeah, asking Microsoft users and Windows users to change. Especially. Well, look at what, Windows Eight. Right, Windows 8 was like, oh, everybody I, go to touch screens, right? Yeah, I will yeah. go on this soapbox. Hospitals uh-huh. in America still use XP or Vista. Yeah, that's yep. how resistant to change people are. We can't, I can't even, I'm getting red just talking about this. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, it's infuriating. Listen, I know the IT mindset and the yeah. IT guy's mindset is this works, this is bro- stable, yeah. and yeah, it, it ain't broke, and like we don't need to move on until we absolutely have to. I don't like I think Windows 10 is actually a good upgrade for a lot of those things. But Mm -hmm. what happens with hospitals and other places is they're running weird apps for like all sorts of machines and different things where it's like, oh, they can't they can't upgrade because the XP compatibility is not great Mm. on Windows 10 or other things. So, hey, maybe maybe they can fix that. Maybe they can, you know, 
Uh, I'm interested in seeing something new. I like Windows, yes. and we talk about this stuff a lot. I, I feel like Apple gets all the software love, but what Microsoft has to do with Windows is tough. You yeah. have to make everybody happy. You have to yeah. like power the entire PC market, and you have to work with partners. You can't just like produce your own hardware yeah. and build around it like Apple does. Yeah, true. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I could see Microsoft just being like Apple and going like, nope, we're going to do this. And Dell, Asus, Acer, HP, you know, Samsung even. Yep. And y'all have to just listen and follow through. But yeah, never going to happen. They're probably not going to. Yeah. But speaking of it. You partners, remember Windows 10 S, by the way? Oh, no. Like that was Windows 10 S was Microsoft's attempt to be like, hey, everybody, we're we're, we're like locking down Windows. It's going to be a little more uh. secure. <laughs> we start doing it on our laptops. Nobody wanted it. Because nope. if you buy Windows again, you want to be able to use it like Windows and download apps from the web and stuff. So we sound yeah. like we hate Windows, but to be clear, Devendra and I are both like my primary daily driver, even my work laptop. Mm-hmm. I like was the one of two Engadget people to ever request a Windows PC for my work machine. Yeah. So there you go. But anyhow, there you go. <laughs> there was other news too, speaking, right? I mean, yeah. Speaking of like cool Windows machines, I think. One of the other things, we didn't see many computers at Computex, but Alienware did take some time to unveil the X15 and M, uh, X17 ultra-thin gaming laptops. And uh, just shining these out, these things look really cool. They have the same like basic design of Alienware's M-series, which we've talked about. I, re- I reviewed those like early on. But they're even thinner. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're like thinner, same. I think even potentially thinner than Razer's hardware, which for the longest time, like being the thinnest gaming laptop around was like Razer's claim to fame. Um, yeah, this is just Alienware going really hard on design, really going hard on thinness here. Uh, are, you, are you excited by the idea of pretty thin gaming laptops? I mean, we were just talking about this, but like what is the weight here really? I know you don't have the yeah. number offhand probably, so I'm just no, kind of looking. I don't think they released it yet either. Yeah, Yeah, that would be that would be interesting because the while mm-hmm. the inch like the the profile here we've got like what uh 1.95 cm which is 0.77 inches uh thick on the bigger i think uh 15 inch laptop uh that's i mean twice what i'm used to no not really oh twice what i'm used to pretty much so we'll still see uh am i excited i That's my answer, really, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough thing. Like, I was on a call with Alienware folks about these things. Yeah. And somebody was just, like, saying, like, so what are we gaining by going thinner? Exactly. You know, what is what is the point of a thin gaming machine? And uh, it, it's like the Alienware folks nice. basically did the, they did the shrug emoji. Right. Because it's like... <laughs> It's like, no, it's not making your system faster. It's not going to help with gameplay. It's not like a monitor upgrade. It's not like a processor upgrade. It is just like, hey, bro, it's thinner. That's cool. And we can say we're thinner. And I do think that is annoying. Yeah, because these are at a premium, right? You're paying $2,000 to $2,100 for these things, whereas the M15 and M17 start at $1,400 to $1,600. So you're paying for thinness and design. yeah, I, I mean, I think that there mm-hmm. is some, like, I mean, technologically, it is impressive to keep going, you know, getting smaller components, mm-hmm, keep making mm-hmm. everything work in smaller packages. Um, but when you're, you know, <laughs> fighting to get to, like, this is a numbers game, right? You're just trying to get you under an inch thick or something, whatever, mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm. is very impossible. But then you, you like you said, sacrifice other things, like you introduce flex for one or how are you going to fight against flex mm-hmm. on something that thin or cool. Like it's heat. It's really heat with gaming thermals. laptops is the problem. 
Yeah. And like, but I, I, outside of the gaming laptop world too, mainstream laptops are also trying to go thin and light. And one thing that mm-hmm. also gets sacrificed is keyboard depth. And excuse me, keyboard like depth, battery life, battery yeah. life. Uh, yeah. And therefore, like the thermal stuff too. So, I, I think, like philosophically, I'm there for the technological advances, and I think eventually uh-huh. we'll get to a day where like our laptops are all like pieces of paper they're so thin you know and light Mm -hmm. but uh am i do i think we've already gone really far and are pretty okay i think so i mean like they're not yeah too bad so you know i think we've kind of hit at least in terms of gaming laptops we've hit the point of diminishing returns and i talked about the asus zephyrus g14 last year that thing weighs three and a half pounds you know is super light the g15 weighs i think like 4.2 which is the one we reviewed this year and though like that to me that is thin and like importable uh i'd be really interested to see the weight on the x15 and x17 but you know if you don't support this idea don't buy it there are so many other systems you can buy live especially if you're buying a gaming laptop you're probably better off getting something that's slightly heavier that has better cooling that can last a lot longer too because gaming hardware if it if you're playing it all the time it's getting hot that stuff degrades you know the thermal grease degrades like the ability for a computer to cool itself gets worse over time so um, i think in a couple of years yeah i, yep. I want to point out that our our executive editor aaron supports is in the chat answering questions where uh i believe peanut air did say that maybe there are some gamers who carry those monstrosities around every day so making them thinner makes some sense so you know that is that has a point but our our, that's uh, what backpacks are for yeah yeah i get that but also aaron uh, like i said pointed out that the alienware x series is so thin that they had to remove all the ports from the side not sure that's what the gamers want Unless mm-hmm. you're full wireless on your accessories, and also don't let's not it's forget not, the not lag and the latency roll. with wireless. Yeah. Exactly, um, like you need these connectors, you need these ports. So, what are you sacrificing? Yep. It's, it's definitely point of diminishing returns <laughs> is the perfect way to put it, Dev. I like it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of perfect mm-hmm. way to put things, by the way, Devendra, I love how when you talked about uh, Dell's executives responding, you said they did the shrug emoji instead of saying they just shrugged. This is how you think of life now. You just think in emoji. No, it's like they literally threw their hands up. It there's was like, shrug, there's ah. a shrug. They shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's funny when real life absolutely reflects <laughs> online life. Yes. So, yeah, it's like when people start saying LOL instead of just saying I they say laughed, you know. I say lol, lol, lol. but uh... <laughs> I never say that. No, I don't. <laughs> I troll to say that. Um, <sighs> but uh, speaking of trolls. I think we had one other piece wow. of news this week that was kind of interesting. Great, great segue into this. Um, we did see the news this week, and I, I had the joy of writing it up. Uh, Donald Trump's online platform, a.k.a. his Blogspot blog, is dead. And I think that is, uh, it's just hilarious. Um, and I don't know, I, I had a little fun writing this too, because it's just, th- this thing doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But it is funny that a guy that existed so much to spew you know everything he wanted to say just like put it out there on twitter put it out there on youtube once he had a blog and he had to like sit there and write down things and get it shared uh without having the sharing mechanisms of social networks uh he just he just couldn't do it um i think it was really funny uh the washington post reports that trump basically ordered to kill the blog after they and a lot of other places reported that it had really dismal traffic. Like it was like 
nobody nobody was really there reading it compared to other places and just the way it was programmed too i remember people were trying to share things links would break you couldn't share videos properly like things didn't share themselves properly to social networks um just kind of hilarious uh where where do you think shalin now that Donald Trump has, you know, tried and failed blogging like so much else in life. Where do you think, you know, he's going to try and fail next? <clears throat> Drum roll, mm-hmm. please. TikTok. <laughs> I was going to do like boom, bow, and then I was like, that's not the right sound. Uh-huh. And and then, yeah. But I, I don't know. I think he's going to find the platform that hasn't turned him away yet. So, I mean... <laughs> TikTok. Well, he did spend a lot of energy trying to kill TikTok in the U.S. Right, so he did. There, and then the that, irony, yeah. the beautiful irony will be that he's going to try to get mm-hmm. on TikTok and then they're going to be like, nah, fam. Uh, I love the picture no, you chose. I, I absolutely your- believe. Uh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I love the picture you chose for your article on this, by the way. It's just Donald Trump making the gesture with his uh, fingers of, of something very his small. So small gesture. And uh, the caption is, that's him measuring his blog's traffic. Yep. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> So I actually saw something pretty interesting just before we started recording. Mm-hmm. So Casey Newton, the guy who yep. writes the Platformer newsletter, talked a little bit about this in his issue today. And so I want to read a little bit of something that he wrote about this. It said, after months of Trump-free Twitter, the platform's value to him has been more clear than ever. Tweets are simply more powerful than posts on a website. They can be reshared to a global audience with a single click. They can attract new followers by the millions and set the agenda for many of the world's prominent journalists. Trump's rapid retreat from blogging highlights the degree to which he depended on free reach, not free speech, to advance yes. his malign agenda. Great, great line. So great line. that is the... Yes, and that is the big, big important thing here. It is free reach Mm -hmm. that he really gets out of these platforms, and especially from Twitter, because let's be real about it, and I literally have this in my Twitter bio, it is a sassy LinkedIn for journalists. It is literally just where news people spend all day, and so that's where he got the most eyeballs (laughs) of the people who controlled media narratives, and they would just like spread whatever he was talking about that day for free Mm -hmm. if people actually need to go to his site to see whatever (laughs) things that he has to say instead of having it served to them just passively it is a totally different ball game and i think this is something that we need to think about in terms of other people who just exist for attention in the future is this a path toward deplatforming and seeing how whether or not deplatforming people um actually is effective mm-hmm. then there needs to be whole benchmarks of who gets yeah. deplatformed and why <laughs> it it gets very complicated and that 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 goes back to like a lot of i think like white supremacists and other folks like notable folks like was it milo yiannopoulos uh who were also banned on networks and we don't hear from them anymore they're gone yeah no they're there are people who yeah. might be saying to you, who is Milo Yiannopoulos exactly. now? Good. If you were on Good. Twitter in 2014 exactly. or 2015, you knew exactly <laughs> who this guy was. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Let me let me just read a statement. Uh, if you were waiting, by the way, for Trump's uh, online platform to launch, do not worry. His senior aide, Jason Miller, said the, the blog, which was just a blog, from the desk of Donald A. Trump, it was just auxiliary to the broader efforts we have and are working on uh, in terms of <laughs> details for next 
whatever the next project is. He's hoping to have more information on the broader effort soon, but I do not have a precise awareness of timing. These people have a way with language of failure. Just got to say. Like, it, it, it is, I, I do love the way they frame all this stuff. But hey, maybe the Donald Trump social network is going to happen in, uh, sometime soon, and it'll also be hilarious. Well, I mean, they're mm-hmm. taking, speaking of tech, they probably take a lot of cues from tech. You know, there's no such thing as messing up. You're just failing forward. That's, uh, just put that on his tombstone. Let's move on to what we're working on. Trillin, what's up? What's up? I know you're you're coming off of a week of vacation, which is well-deserved, but also vacation means more work in other yep. ways, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. digging myself out of this vacation hole, which is like catching up on the hundreds and hundreds of emails, which I still haven't fully gotten around to doing because I'm still trying to you, test you don't just like highlight everything and say Mark, Mark I do, is red. I do that, but I kind of <laughs> have to it. read. So I, like, I highlight everything and I'm like, okay, is this... Is this okay. market yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this, like I had to like filter anyway doing that plus um testing a new system plus prepping for WWDC um which is Monday next week uh Monday June 7th whenever that is Tuesday um and mm-hmm. yeah getting getting ready for that but I'm hoping fingers crossed that the summer will be a bit slower after June because I know <laughs> all the way till the end of June we're pretty slammed but that's yeah hopefully List uh, tech company pl- event planners, listen to me, dear please. God, please do not schedule Give us any more of August at least. Yeah, yeah, clear July and August. Just let's <laughs> all take a break. Let's not introduce anything for a while. Go, go. Mm-hmm. Let's all everybody go rest. So that's uh, that's me just praying <laughs> very hard for the next two months to be empty. How about you? Cool. I am uh, so the things I mentioned, I'm working on that Asus ROG. Strix review. I really like the benchmarks I'm seeing so far because this thing is actually outpacing the 3080 in uh, in some benchmarks and some games. But again, I, I think ray tracing is going to be the weakness for for AMD at this point. Uh, and I'm also simultaneously working on a review for the 37Ti, which is going to drop sometime next week. Let's but, uh, move on yes. to our picks. How about that? And yes. I really, I'm really interested in hearing what's up with your picks. Well, I think you're interested because I have to publicly go on the record and tell everyone you were right. The um, oh, yeah. I just like it when Sherlin says that. So that's all. <laughs> you recommended, I think, two weeks ago, the Nevers, uh, and you know you've been also like offline telling me to go watch it, and I like went and watched it during my time off. It's amazing. It's really good. It's like a cross between like. Penny Dreadful, Miss Peregrine's House for Extraordinary Children. I think that's the title. Plus X-Men. No, <laughs> plus X-Men. Yeah. Plus X-Men. I, I really liked it. I think that if anyone here still hasn't seen it, the whole first half of the first season is up on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And all the things you pointed out about having a different showrunner, maybe changing maybe the second half of the season uh, could be worth thinking about. But right now, it's like a fun ride. Uh, and I'm really yeah. excited I just- for more. I rewatched, by the way, the the second half of that series again with uh, with my wife, and she was also similarly impressed. Like the it second is, half, it is like really a, cool. Right, right, because you didn't like the first uh, few episodes yourself. I, I loved think episode it, two was weak. Right, right, right. Episode two was a little weak because the pilot was great. Right. But beyond that, like everything was good. Yeah. I yeah, I liked all of it, and I haven't like rewatched in in like very seriously yet. But no. Uh, anyhow, it's it's a really cool show mm-hmm. about like. 
not mutants, but sort of superhero-y mutants. Superpowers. Type. Yeah, yeah. Superpowers. And like the whole the whole theme is very similar to X-Men, but uh, you know, like this is an evolution, <laughs> this is a whatever. Anyways, if you're interested in that sort of stuff set in the Victorian era, I guess. Uh yeah, go check it out. But my uh, I've been watching a lot of shows that I'm saving for future episodes to tell you guys to watch. But for now, mm-hmm. uh, this week, I, I thought it would be the time to go on a ramble about more food stuff. Because the last time I recommended oh, stuff boy. to you guys, it was about food. Yeah. This time around, I am telling you guys to check out the app called Too Good To Go. It's actually, uh, I believe, not really a foundation, but it's a website as well as like an Android and iOS app called Too Good To Go. Basically, it's a movement uh, or or some sort of project, right, where where these mm-hmm. people have teamed up with restaurants to sell nice. the food that they have left at the end of the day um, for a much cheaper price to people near them. Um, and it tackles food waste, which like imagine if you weren't like were like if, if a restaurant that's not the size of say a, a chain like I don't know De- Chili's, Denny's, TGI Fridays, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Those <laughs> those chains I believe have their own programs to manage their food waste and that sort of stuff. But like smaller like independent uh, restaurant owners don't generally have that. So if they prepare food ahead of time, if you watch a lot of kitchen nightmares like I do, you know that like food waste, (laughs) (laughs) rotting food in the kitchen is no good. Um, Uh So anyway, what you can do with the app is, and this is, I'll I'll tell you why I'm recommending this later, but the, the way you can do in the app is you check out what restaurants are in your area. And I found like, surprisingly, a lot of restaurants near me are participating. You can sign up um, and reserve a a bag. So they have these surprise bags um, that you can pick up at the end of the day or at a certain mealtime of leftover food um, and pay a fraction of the price you would otherwise pay for a meal like that. So like a lot of the bags are like $3.99 instead of the usual $10 to $11 for Mm. a meal that size. And yeah, you can pick it up at like times that are good for you, 8.30, 9.30. Usually end of day, I'm seeing a lot of those times. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually picked up a bag myself yet just because like I'm not really buying eating out a lot. But if you are looking for a way to like try something new and like you don't want to spend too much money eating out all the time, I think this could be good if you're willing to take a gamble on what like food a uh, yeah. restaurant might offer because you you don't know where you're gonna get right exactly you never really know i mean Mm -hmm. if you are worried about allergens and stuff like that you you can call up the restaurant and be like hey you know you make a reservation you call up the restaurant and be like hey i'm you know dairy free or or i can't have nuts and then see if the bag has any of that stuff and probably get none of that in your bag but anyway that's cool the other thing i was going to suggest is if you're looking to try different cuisine this week you can try portuguese food i miss portugal so much but the the reason i caught Mm. on this app the path that took me down installing this app for myself because i've seen the ads on instagram too but um was that i was like looking at old pictures i was like oh i miss portugal and portuguese food so i was like looking up portuguese restaurants in my neighborhood and then somehow like i found a review that said oh i found this place through too good to go and so that's Mm -hmm. when i installed it and like it's just I'm obsessed with food. So y'all are going to hear a lot of food recommendations from me. <laughs> just deal with it. Uh, but uh, this is at least sort of tech related and and somewhat helpful, I think. 
So anyway, yeah, enjoy. Nice. I'm, yeah. I miss I miss good Portuguese foods, by the way. Like, that oh, is one thing. I've never been to Portugal, but so growing good. up in New England, there are a lot of, like, Portuguese families Ooh. there who, who make, like, a lot of different foods. So, I yeah, used to have family friends who would make stuff all the time. Do they good make food. Good food. Thank you for the food, Rex, yeah. Jolene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't. I mean, we'll, we'll talk offline about all the food. What about you? Okay. What are you going to tell me to watch, tell people to watch this week? I want to tell, listen, so there's this crazy movie called Riders of Justice, oh. which is a, I believe it's a Danish film uh, directed by, I'm trying to look up the names here, directed by Anders Thomas Jensen, starring my man, Mads Mikkelsen, who I love. And uh, this movie is so weird. I'm not going to spoil much of what happens. I think the basic setup is like a taken revenge action thriller, but it's also a comedy sort of it's also like a weird like christmas fairy tale at times it is sort of like if you take the guy if you take a taken movie and you add and this is probably dating me but like the nerds uh from the x-files like the lone gunman so it's like a taken movie plus you have like the computer hacker and like the, the just a bunch of computer nerds who are also like in this uh thriller movie too it is hilarious. It is weird. It, I think it kind of like flips the action revenge genre on its head a little. And also, Mads Mikkelsen, always great. Always great. I'll, I love everything this man does. Uh, check out Another Round on Hulu, which I think is one of the best movies I've seen uh, in, in a very long time. I believe it won the the Oscar for Best... Did it win Best, best International Film? Uh, anyway, amazing film. Mads Mikkelsen is fantastic. Check out Writers of Justice. I think it's worth renting. Also want to shout out a show which I think you will really Ooh. love, Shalyn. It is oh. called Girls by Veva. I saw it is the on, ads for this. Yeah, it's on Peacock, which is, I hate saying, I hate saying the name Peacock, um, which is like NBC's, you know, the streaming thing. You can watch a bunch, this is a show about um, basically a girl group, like the Spice Girls from the 90s, who had like one hit and then failed. And then it's about like who they are now. And them as like older people coming back and trying to like make a mark in the world and maybe uh, make some music. Uh, it is really funny, you know. I think it's uh it stars Sarah Bry Bryles Bryes is Bryes. Um, Busy Phillips. A lot of people I really enjoy enjoy. It's produced by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, so it has that sort of like thirty rock vibe. It's just really funny. It's like a musical comedy uh, with a great cast, and you can watch a bunch of episodes free on the peacock app uh if you don't mind some ads and if you subscribe to peacock which i don't know if i'd recommend anybody do that um you know yeah then you can watch everything but i think it's a lot of fun it's really good peacock weirdly has become the service that uh that has a lot of like secretly good comedies uh i forget if i talked about this but the saved by the bell reboot is actually fantastic (laughs) so and nobody expected that but you can only watch on peacock it's just Mm -hmm. so weird interesting mm-hmm. I, I think discovery plus also has a lot of random stuff that like i kind of want to watch because of the food channel stuff the food network sorry stuff. exactly um all of these little streaming ads and their little niches thing. and that's it for the episode this week everyone thank you as always for listening our theme music is by game composer dale north our outro music is by our very own terrence o'brien the podcast is produced by ben elman you can find Devendra online at... At Devendra on Twitter or chat about movies and TV at the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilm.com. If you want to just randomly tweet me pictures of really awesome looking food, 
I'm at Sherlyn Lo on Twitter. Email us your thoughts at podcast at Engadget.com. Leave us a review, please, on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. Hey, this is Terrence O'Brien, managing editor at Engadget and resident music nerd and music tech reporter. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to sit down and interview Alessandro Cortini, who is an amazing musician and composer and who you might know uh, from his contributions to Nine Inch Nails, of which he is a touring member, uh, as well as Tony Rolando from Make Noise Music, uh, a synthesizer company based out of Asheville, North Carolina, that tends to specialize in things that are a little bit strange and experimental. The, the two of them came together recently to collaborate on a new synthesizer called the Strega. It is a very unique, very strange instrument. It's a tiny desktop synthesizer that's $600 and basically doesn't sound anything like any of the other tiny affordable desktop synthesizers out there. So this isn't a Volca this isn't even something like a Korg Minilog. This is its own weird, unique beast. So uh, we had a very long, sprawling conversation about what it was like to collaborate on it, what the vision was going into building the Strega, and kind of how Alessandro came to make the jump from creating music with synthesizers to designing his own. So don't miss it. You want to stick around and check this out. All right, so joining us today, we have uh, Tony Rolando from Make Noise and Alessandro Cortini, uh, an accomplished musician, composer, and you also might know him as a touring member uh, and contributor to Nine Inch Nails. Uh, thank you both for joining us today and welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so let's start a little bit um, by talking about Make Noise in general. Uh, Tony, can you tell me a little bit about the company, where you guys are based, what you do, that sort of thing? Yeah, Make Noise is based out of Asheville, North Carolina. That's in Western North Carolina. We've been here for approaching 20 years now, I think. Uh, actually, maybe closer to 15. Uh, and uh, we design and build mostly modular synthesizers, but we've also been making some standalone musical instruments, such as the Strega, uh, where we collaborated with uh, Alessandro Cortini to create an instrument that is um, spiritually connected to his uh, artistic output. <laughs> um, we spent about two years trying to capture a glimpse of his magic and put it into a box that other people could uh, create with. Uh, that's our most recent project, but we've also developed a full system of modular synthesizer modules. So for example, the DPO, Optimix, Maths, the Morphogene, uh, Mimeophone, uh, where we collaborate with Tom Erb, um, Soundhack, and um, yeah, also the shared system, which is probably the thing that we're maybe most known for, I guess, outside of the, something like the Strega or the Zero Coast. Mm -hmm. And is there like a core aesthetic that you guys kind of strive for? Is there, uh, I guess, like what's the connecting thread between all of these pieces? Well, uh, it's changed over the years. Being a company for uh, 15 or so years really... Um, you know, in the beginning, 
I, I had been working for Moog Music, which are also based here in Asheville. And I kind of struck out on my own to attempt to de- develop PCBs, printed circuit boards for other companies. But most companies didn't want to hire me because I didn't have any kind of portfolio. So I started developing my own printed circuit boards. And that kind of led to developing modules. And um, initially, I was deeply inspired by the work of Don Buchla. And at that point, it, it was very, I guess it was just a different time. All of that stuff just seemed very magical and mysterious because no one was really talking about it so much. And it wasn't really, I, I, it was just this whole world of synthesizers that I had really only seen pictures of. Uh, but then, you know, becoming friends with Alessandro gave me the opportunity to play and be in the same room as some of those instruments. And, and um, that kind of opened up that world a little bit more. So yeah, initially, it was just a, a deep inspiration of the work of Don Buchla. But today, it's very different. Today, it's, it's, um, it's developed into uh, something entirely different that would be maybe beyond the scope of this program to describe, <laughs> honestly. Um, it, it, because now I feel like we really thrive mostly on, on collaboration um, so such as the, the bit that we've just done with Alessandro, but then also looking at the morphogene, mimeophone, echophone, the things that we've done with Tom Herb, which are also collaborations in a, in a similar manner to what the Straga is with Alessandro. Um, I feel like that's maybe where the more exciting part of Make Noise is, for me at least. I, I, I really enjoy collaborating with, mm-hmm. with these folks. And Alessandro, how did you first connect with Tony and the Make Noise team? How did you guys uh, end up starting to work together? Uh, well, I connected with Tony at the beginning of of, uh, of Make Noise because I remember buying, I think, the first one of the first batch. What was it? Was it a mod? It was the ring mod, a passive. Oh, you had the mod to mod? Yeah. I didn't know you had one of those, honestly. Yeah, I bought it from Sean. Oh, right. Yeah. That's when I became familiar with with make noise and then you know f- from a from an outside from a user's point of view i followed you know uh, up to the qmmg and i think shortly after that uh you know obviously the qmmg just to make it easy for people it's it's a reinterpretation of an essential core element in the in the bucla modular which is the low pass gate it's a but unlike a lot of the other low-pass gates that I had seen, which were simply a, not, not even an adaptation, but a copy of what Don had done with, you know, components that weren't as expensive or, you know, in that format. Tony, from the beginning, from a design point of view, gave, gave me the impression of being someone who could digest the information or things that he really loved. And he was able to repurpose them and represent them digested. And you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like he really was able not to cover up, but just really digest, analyze and process in a personal way what somebody else's inspiring idea might have been. And that that I think was the base of what really, you know, connected me with with uh, Tony and Kelly's work at, at Make Noise was the fact of presenting something very unique with the with you know, a tip of the hat to the to the people that really inspired me with music instrument making without feeling like it was, you know, a copy because it never mm-hmm. felt like it was a copy. There was always an entity, both from a graphical and a sonic point of view that 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 makes, you know, the company and the sound that to me is the make noise sound. Um, I can remember exactly. I think we met 
at a show. It must have been a show for sure. Like it must have been a trade show. But we clicked right away, both with Tony and with Kelly. And we, I, I think that uh, my, my my connection with them is equal due to obviously what Tony uh, is from a professional point of view and how he does that. But just as much as a person, I feel like uh, very connected with Tony and Kelly from a friendship point of view. And, and they're really a family to me. And we've always felt like a, a connection that wasn't based on, oh, let's make something together. In fact, I think we've known each other more, longer as, as friends than we had oh, as yeah. collaborators. And, uh, but I think essential to the, I think to the, to the, you know, to the success, and I'm not talking about the, you know, the success of the collaboration as in coming up with something we're both happy with. I think that was an essential part of it. You know, the fact that mm -hmm. Tony and I, from a creative point of view, Tony had already created things, like the you know the the CV bus in the case of of his modular uh, of of the shared system that was designed to help me to utilize the shared system live in a better way uh, with color coded CV signals that would allow me to you know to redistribute CV signals around even in a dark stage assigning colors blinking colors or you know like lit colors to specific. Uh, signal so I would know that for example green would be pitch for me or gates would be red you know what I mean it'd be very easy on a on a dark stage and from there on I mean I, I think we had a project uh that we kind of labeled the ghost synth but back in the day we, that we did together uh with another friend of ours Scott Yeager that never really went anywhere but uh we've always had it was always easy for us to talk about stuff like this. Like, mm -hmm. and, and it, it really felt like, uh, you know, like, a, um, an instrument design version of being in a band really, mm -hmm. uh, in a very natural, I mean, I'm sure probably there, there's been more, you know, uh, labored moments for, <laughs> for Tony that have been for me in the sense that to me, it was always very exciting to talk about these things. And, you know, I would probably bring up things that, you know, to do that Tony was like what uh, you even know what that means <laughs> but I think that also my inexperience from a design point of view allowed Tony to approach things from a from a you know from an angle that he might have not considered if you were to analyze mm -hmm. them simply from a design point of view you know what I mean mm. so uh, uh, that is a long a long sort to say that I don't think you know a long way to say that I don't think there could have been a better way for this collaboration to to start, I mean, there was friendship. There was a mutual respect for what we did, and uh, and an ease of communication. You know, so uh, I think, uh, at, you know, as right now looking back, it's like, well, no wonder we were able to do something like this. I think, I think all the ingredients were there to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, I guess it makes sense. You you've been friends for a while. It sounds like you've collaborated. Uh, in the past on a smaller scale before moving on to the Strega, at what point did you guys decide we're going to build a full on instrument together? Or we're going to like work on this bigger project. Was, was there a moment or was it just something that kind of gradually emerged out of other conversations? I think, I, well, I, I, all I remember is conversations of what would you, I mean, I think, and, and, and Tony, tell me if, if uh, I'm romanticizing or connecting dots or I'm not there, but, <laughs> What I remember is Tony's interest not much in in the in the instruments that I use, but what I was getting out of the instruments that I was using. Like so, like for example, when he saw me playing with the easel, he wouldn't ask questions about the easel itself. It was more about the process and how I was getting certain things out of it. Same thing about the 
you know, some uh, fuzz or distortion pedals or same thing about delays and same thing about EMS synthy. So I think the way that I interpret it is, is that once Tony saw how I behaved in front of instruments to him, to him, it became interesting the the, 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 the plan of creating a canvas that would allow me to feel that way, to behave that way. You know what I mean? To, to basically not so much copying an element of each synth, but more put Alessandro in a position where it'll behave the same way, you know? Mm -hmm. So why is he behaving that way? We know that you can't just take an element out of a synth and repurpose it and you won't behave the same way because right. an instrument is a collection of different things put together in a certain way. But uh, the short answer is, I think three years ago, I think in New York, we were in a macrobiotic restaurant and I remember we were yeah. sketching down um, sketching down ideas. The first ideas of what an instrument could be. And again, the, the thing I want to underline is that there's never been any sort of uh, pressure on or, or feeling that we had to do it at a certain time. It almost felt like, a, not almost, it was always refreshing and exciting to know that we were going to talk about it because we knew that there was no deadline. It was like, let's see if it might happen. But there wasn't like, oh, we got to do this. We got to make sure that it sells. We got to, we got, you know, obviously there was, I'm assuming from a company point of view, a responsibility in feeling that, you know, um, that there would be something that people might relate to. But also I think the moment that Tony asked me, do you realize this thing is very noisy? And then we said yes and continued. From there on, <laughs> he, he was ready for any sort of consequence. <laughs> well, no, it... it... Well, that restaurant was an Angelica's Kitchen. I don't Angelica know if you've yeah. ever been there, Terrence. Uh, it, it unfortunately no longer open. It had been open since the 70s, though, which it was a wonderful restaurant. Um, but but to the point, I think the key there is is a, this idea that there was there was no um, pressure or deadline, and there, I, I really don't think there was. And I like that because I feel very strongly that we have a lot of synthesizers in the world today there are a lot of synthesizers currently available and to me I, I i feel that there's no sense in developing something new unless it truly deserves to be added to that pile that we already have and so i i, I think you have and the only way to do that is time you have to develop ideas and then you have to destroy them. I mean, you have to, you can't just, you can't just make the first thing you come up with. You have to just keep developing and developing and, and, and retooling, revising until you come up with something that is truly unique and wonderful and worthy of being put out into the world. Because one thing I don't want my name attached to is producing tomorrow's landfill. You know, it's just, there's no sense in it. I mean, Jesus, you can open up reverb right now and, and, and throw a dart and hit, a, you know, some random $200 analog synthesizer and, and half of them will sound very similar to each other. So you really can't lose if you just want that basic eighties analog synthesizer sound. So I feel like we, we did achieve that with the Strega. I don't think it's, I don't think there's a lot to compare it to, which is a positive thing in my, my, um, in my opinion. Now, is it for everybody? Definitely not. Because as, as Alessandro has mentioned, it is quite noisy. It is not a universally, um, 
a pliable instrument. You, 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 no one's going to say, oh, I think I need a good funky bass sound and turn to Distrego. Now, <laughs> somebody might, it'd be a wonderful challenge, but I just, I don't think that it's something that somebody would go to when they're looking for that kind of sound and many other sounds. There's many sounds that you cannot do well, in my opinion, with the Strega. But the sounds that you can do well with the Strega, I, I feel strongly that, it, it, that you'd be hard pressed to find something that could do those sounds better. So it, it, it's, it's in my, it, I really like that it has that, that quality. Yeah. I, I, it, it, you know, the other thing, sorry, to, I wanted to add, yeah. it's also Go the, ahead. The, the, the one thing that we, that we struck, you know, strives to achieve was also the, the more passive approach, as opposed to like Tony said, when someone goes and tries to get a bass sound, like wants something and tries to get it out of an instrument. There was the whole point of sitting in front of a machine that stimulated a two-way conversation. Because a lot of the machines that I was inspired by were like that. They looked or felt like a toys, didn't make me feel responsible or didn't make me feel like I had to learn. I felt creatively explorative about the instrument. And then a spark came out and then I knew what to do. Yeah. And I really like that. I like the fact that, that it's not a job that, all right, I know that some people might approach it that way and not feel like it's a job. But when you sit and say, I want to create a base with that, there's a certain amount of structure that I'm not too, too fond of, you know, I'm, from a creative point of view. Yeah. I like to sit in front of stuff and see what comes out. Why? Mm -hmm. Because I've done it long enough that something comes out all the fucking time anyway. Mm -hmm. So You know what I mean? It doesn't have yeah. to be, and I'm not saying that everything's gold, but I'm saying I'm creative all the time. So if there's a machine that makes me even more creative and that makes me feel good, uh, something cool will come out and it'll make me feel yeah. good about it. And, and then the more you do it, the more you're able to go back to the more active process of the more you know the machine, the more you know what you can get out of it. Mm -hmm. You know. But I think it was, it was definitely a, a, a priority for us to create something that would make us feel creative you know, and, and uh, spend hours, even if you don't make music, to feel relaxed and enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and talking about that, that sort of uh, idea of, I don't like the word passive necessarily, but like what you're saying, like you sit down and something comes out. You don't sit down necessarily with the idea of making a base uh, and, I'm I'm very much in that same mindset. Like I love the idea of just sitting down and seeing what comes out and exploring it. Yeah. Um, but it, would you go so far as to call Strega like a happy accident machine? Because um, I feel like that does have like a certain connotation, and I don't know if that's. And those are often two kind of worlds. Like sit down and see what comes out, but also the uh, sort of unpredictability and difficulty of recreating something that comes with like that like sort of uh, happy accident, just do whatever. Yeah, to a certain extent I would, but not, I mean, a lot of the machines that we used as, a, I don't want to say reference, but that I used before were taking that, that aspect to the extreme. Mm -hmm. When it came to the streg, I think what, what Tony tried to do was to extrapolate what made those machines behave the way that they want in a more, as far as was possible, more controlled way, because the one thing we wanted to take out was the frustration that sometimes can come 
from machines that have a certain age or they're designed in a certain way while retaining the juice, you know, retaining why we liked those machines. For example, one thing, and I'm, I'm sure Tony will agree, was the overdrive stages in the Synthi, the fact mm-hmm. that every stage can be overdriven. Tony has spent an immense amount of time finding a way to integrate the discourse in the Strega in a way that made sense, you know. Where, where stages could be overdriven, both at the input or the output, you know, and, and, and for it to be musical mm-hmm. in a way that never sounded, you know, bad, essentially, you know. While in the synthy, you can make it sound bad, you know. It's, it, it takes a very small <laughs> turn, and bad, and bad is bad. You might want bad one time, but not many times, you know what I mean? I'll tell you, that's, I, I got a synthy, uh, and I'll be honest, mostly because of... of, of Alessandro and, and Delia. And I have to say that is one of the most frustrating instruments I have ever owned. <laughs> it is very hard to make a synthy sound good, in my opinion. And it might, maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but it is really hard. It's one of those things. You know, I also, I, you play a music easel, and I really feel like I can make a music easel sound beautiful. But when I have tried to play the synthy, I have never had the kind of, of results that I hear from, from Alessandro or, or Adela Derbyshire and other people who play that instrument. It's just, it is such a hard instrument to make sound great. <laughs> well, and I, I think, you know, and the go- thank you. But I think the goal with the, with the Strega was the same thing, to figure out how could we create a, a canvas that would be, because uh, there, there was a little bit of a fear, I want, two fears mostly. One, that people wouldn't get it. And and two, the people would all sound like, like me. There'd be a box yeah. that would make everything yep. sound like. Uh, not not that I feel like I have that much of a you know identity, but you know there's there are few fa- musical factors <laughs> that might make you think. All right, it's out of tune. I repeat it for a half hour. It sounds like routine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, and so we were pleasant because I don't think, and Tony might be disagreeing with this because he's the one that actually designed the thing but um i don't think there's a way to be 100 percent sure that you're creating something that people can relate to it's just not possible it's hard yeah. and, and so when we started putting together this compilation uh, of promotion promotional compilation for the strega which will come out in july uh and we started sending it out to friends you know like marta saloni Caterina barbieri uh hiro kone um ben frost um uh, Juliana Borwick, uh, we started getting these artists through the Strega. We, we didn't get, you know, a forced version of themselves through an instrument that almost, you know, like it's much smaller than, you know, their their entity. It felt like the Strega adapted 100% to who they were, um, or at least they were able to integrate it in the way they were making music in a way that never felt forced, never felt like, you know, they were they were trying to please anybody, us or whoever. And it made us very happy. I mean, it, and it's also a, a very 360 spectrum. It doesn't feel like there is a strega sound mm-hmm. when you listen to those 10, 15 tracks. It feels like you hear it's the strega, obviously, but it doesn't feel like it's a one-way, you know, sonic well, color. I have, I have two thoughts on that. One is I, I feel that, that it does... Um, speak to the depth of any instrument when an artist can um, when an artist can put their 
uh, I'm not going to find the right words here, but when an artist can shine through an instrument, I feel like that speaks to the depth of the instrument. So for one, and you know, the the strega is among many, there's there's many wonderful instruments out there where an artist can can speak through them. Um, But also I feel like it speaks to the quality of artists because I, I actually do think it would be easy for somebody to do something with the strega that, that, um, had the strega sound but i think that the real like a a, a for me artists of a certain merit when they reach they reach a level where they just know that that's not how they're going to shine through they they're, they're going to speak to the listener more if they find how to have their their own soul shine through that instrument and i think that's what you're you're getting Alessandro, with that compilation, you just, it's just, a, it just speaks to the caliber of artists that you chose to appear on the compilation, I think. They, and they, yeah, they and all also, shine you know, through. Even the people you got, we sent it to demo it. I mean, like Heimbach is a great example because you know how Heimbach is such an inquisitive mind musically. Yes. You know? Yes. And you know that it's going to, you know, but it's not gratuitously inquisitive. I don't think he reacts to everything. You know, I think that you have to give him stuff that, that yeah. he can sort of like, it's like putting a rat in a labyrinth. You got there has to be cheese at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And he's like sure. that. And and when he did this thing on the Strega, the video, uh, his his experimentations with it. Uh, I mean, he came up with things that I didn't even think about. I mean, not that I could think of yeah. all of them, but like it was very informative. You know, like for example, using the envelope in loop mode as a second oscillator. That to me was yeah. awesome. You know what I mean? And yeah. he didn't really use what I like the Strega for the most, which is like long <laughs> and dirty delays. He really likes short delays. So it yeah. was very, yeah. very interesting to see how someone who has that sort of thirst for discovery, what his search brought out in the same instrument that I love. You know, it was very, it's a very incredibly rewarding process to see people uh experience and and explore the strega and it's something that i would have never never anticipated uh, regardless of the fact that it you know that is a success or it couldn't have not been it doesn't matter i think that i wouldn't have i didn't think about what my reaction would be when i see people you know reacting this way and and just going down you know rabbit hole i mean i'm sure i will have to feel you know responsible for the for the annihilation of their social lives a little bit more but <laughs> then again i think the last year probably took care of that anyway so absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah, you know in in talking about you know you're you're mentioning heimbach and um you know i also felt like sarah bell reed really yeah, sarah, yeah, uh shown through just, yeah yeah i mean she sent me an ep that she recorded and i mean it, it didn't sound like the strega at all to me but it did sound incredible it actually terrified me um it is yeah um but you know maybe it's you know maybe one thing to touch on here then is that because the strega doesn't um conform to uh the modern um they're just there's something about modern synthesizers where they try to be everything you know and and uh, you know there is a there's a market for that and there's people that are looking for it and and i don't want i don't want um, to seem ungrateful because I, I enjoy some of those instruments uh, from time to time. But there's this idea that a synthesizer should today should be able to do everything. Uh, it should be able to uh, recreate the sounds of the 70s, you know, Moog, Arp, and so on. The sounds of the 80s, you know, the Roland uh, samples, 
wave tables, everything. And, and, and there's this idea that it, it should just be able to make a whole track and make all the different sounds that represent everything from like the sixties to present. And um, I think maybe because the Strega does not, um, it, it, you, you just even looking at it, it basically tells you, yeah, you know, you, you're not, this is not your universal key to the sounds of synthesis from the 60s to modern times. Maybe that attracts a certain type of artist, such as Heimbach or Sarah Bell Reed or, or Ben Frost, and maybe they're more um, attracted to that quality um, than, than, you know, potentially other, other types of artists would be. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say no, no. no. I, I think you make make an interesting point. This is a, a good moment if you're listening to the podcast instead of watching it. I apologize, but this is I think a good moment as any to actually like hold up the extra actual Strega and show like you what you're saying about this getting away from the modern synthesis thing uh, and this trying to do everything. Even like the terminology on the and I keep bumping the microphone. I apologize. Even the terminology on the face of this thing is not your usual like modern synthesis uh, terminology for the most part. Like you, you know, the we have the activation and uh, what the uh, looping envelope. What is the word we're using for that again? Uh, oh, we use no words for it actually yeah, i was gonna say actually it's not on here it's called something in the it's called something uh in the manual which i don't have in front of me um <laughs> but it's 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 there yeah um but yeah you don't you don't have there, there's no lfo even though there is like a looping well, envelope. Is, i mean the looping envelope is an lfo yeah yeah yeah, um, that, you know, there's a variable waveform, wave shaper essentially that allows you to have, you know, zero attack and a longer de decay or vice versa. You know, it's a it's a loopable AD, which basically turns it into a variable waveform LFO. I agree with you about the, the labeling, but also they're not, you know, they all make sense. You know, like if I look at the tonic, tonic, I know what it is. You know, it's, you know, it, it's activation. Once you turn it, you go, yeah, right. That's what it does, you know. Uh, I think it would have been harder to find, a, you know, a standard term to label them because <laughs> some of the things that this machine does, other machines don't do it the way that this machine does. You know what I mean? And I hate to call it. It sucks that but it's normal that you have to go through this process. But really, I think another thing that I wanted to bring up is the fact that once we announced it, everybody was sort of like complaining. A lot of people were complaining. Oh, it doesn't do this. Really? It looks like that. <laughs> yes, because we're in a think... society that judges by feature set. You know, we're reading about well, yeah. it, the photos. And once this ended up in people's hands, the tables turned immediately, immediately. And all of a sudden, it was sold out everywhere. You know what I mean? Because unfortunately, not a lot of people take the time to just to risk and make the investment and spend those $600 on it. I mean, you might think, oh, it's easy for you. Well, yeah, you know, I, I save up and buy stuff like everybody else. But if I don't <laughs> click with an instrument, then I'll chuck it as an experience. I live with it for six yeah. months or whatever. Mm -hmm. I've learned something about myself in the process. Yeah, yeah. And move it on to somebody else. So I'll chuck those $200 as a three or four month rental fee. You know what I mean? I do it still to this day. If after six months, the piece of gear doesn't click with me, it goes out the window, you know, unless it's a vintage thing. Obviously, <laughs> that's a different category. Uh, well, the, the envelope generator you're talking about is called the agitation generator. It, 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 
I think we chose, we settled on some of these names because we were trying to promote this idea of the Strega experiment, this idea of, of um, taking some tonal elements and combining them and, and, um, and kind of creating a, uh, a result that was potentially not you know, just the sum of the parts and um, it, that was deeply influenced by the circuitry that's inside. Uh, so that, I think the idea of agitation is, you know, like if you put some different elements uh, into a test tube and you agitate the test tube, it, it starts bubbling up or smoking or, or whatever. Uh, I'm not a chemist, so <laughs> um, I, I don't know the exact, uh, exactly what's going on in there. But I do know that, that agitation is a method of, of, of creating uh, some sort of, of a spark, some sort of response to combining some elements. So the agitation generator is essentially shaking up the uh it's shaking up the mixture that you you've, you've done uh prior using the tonic and and uh and then time you know as time passes the experiment you know the, the the results change as time passes so actually let's 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 walk through a few of the features for uh those who aren't a hundred percent familiar with with this yet and uh unfortunately i think our review is going to go up after the this podcast does uh i'm not sure what day yet um ben if you are editing this in the pot and the review is already up please cut this part out so let's let's take a, a little walk through some of the the core feature set because i think um you know we we are in gadget we do care about specs so like what 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 are you know uh, the features here, like what are we, what are we walking through? Like, starting with the beginning of the signal chain, I guess. Well, I think if you want to just get down to the the spec, you know, if you wanted to make a spec sheet for the Strega, um, I think the key thing to think about would be that it, it is, it is a complete synthesis voice, um, and that voice is not arranged in the classic. Minimoog style that nearly every um, analog synthesizer will be arranged in. So as opposed to VCO into mixer into v VCF into VCA, um, you would start with there is a VCO that's the, represented by the tonic. Uh, it has variable wave shaping that is um, unlike other devices I've used in my lifetime. I mean, maybe there's something else out there that's similar, but I haven't used it yet. It's definitely not something that I would create for a, a module that make noise was going to do. It's a little bit too, um, there's something about it that's kind of wrong, but works really well within the Strega. <laughs> um, outside of the Strega, I don't imagine we could create something like this and have people be happy with it. It's, it's very unique to the Strega. Um, so that's represented by the tonic and the tones controls. Um, and rather than going into the, um, Rather than going into a mixer that's then fed into uh, the filter, it actually goes to the VCA straight out. Um, and so that's the activation section there, which is to the left of it. And that controls the, the uh, it animates the amplitude of, the, of that tone generator. Now, the other part of the equation is that there is an external input. So in addition to being a, a synthesis voice, it can also process external signals. Um, in numerous ways, obviously through the entire Strega, but also uh, it's also capable of doing ring modulation, amplitude modulation, distortion. Um, so a, a lot of different analog 
signal processing is useful in in um, in the studio. So that that then that external signal is then mixed with the the internal voice, the stregatones, and then from there it goes into the part of the instrument that probably gives it the most character, which is a combination of of several delay lines, a whole lot of feedback paths, and a, uh, a, a multi-mode filter. And what's interesting about the Strega is that Corti Alessandro and I did, really didn't want the echo, the echo verb, I'll call it, to, to just be an end of chain effect. And so that's why the controls are in the center of the instrument. It actually is not at the end of chain, uh, the, uh, the filters at the end of chain. So, which again, it's just, I'm not saying it's some sort of, uh, incredible choice that no one else has ever made but it is a it is a unique choice in a in a hardwired synthesis instrument and um so putting that that echo in front of the the filter and having the filter be the output essentially is another thing that really defines the sound of the strega so it it, it kind of sets it apart from your more standard bco mixer BCF, BCA. This one's a, it's like BCO, BCA, mixer, echo verb, filter, and then another mixer at the end. Um, so it's kind and of a strange combination. It's really on the feedback. So it's like, it's not really at the end either. It's like the filter is in two places. That's exactly. There's filters. There's, there's actually multiple filters as well. Some of them, there are filters, there is uh, a voltage control filter in the feedback path, but also at the output, um, another another filter. And then there's also some, some non-voltage control filters. Uh, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of stuff happening inside there, but it, it's it's just um, the basic arrangement, I would say, is, is as I've stated it, uh, which is, is, again, in itself, kind of a, a strange um, combination of functional blocks that are just a little less typical than than you would see in you know if you opened up a a music store catalog today with countless variations on the VCO VCF VCA not that there's anything wrong with that that uh, arrangement no, but Dr. in Mo turn it definitely leads you to behave in a set, in a different way on the instrument you know because yeah I mean, for sure. the three big the, the big I mean at the center the bigger knob is the delay so obviously. Yeah. It's placed there and at that size because we want you to play with those three knobs as much as possible. Yeah. Because they're, yeah. you know, uh, if a delay would be considered at the end of chain, then it'd be considered an effect. In this case, yeah. it's not an effect. And it's yeah. more of a, an essential part of what the sound should be on the instrument. You can yep. or can, can bypass it if you want to, obviously. But the way that yep. we envisioned it is just as important as the voice itself. I mean, early on, I had a version without the that final mix stage. There's the second mixer that I mentioned, which essentially allows you to uh, bleed in some dry signal from the stregatones and the external input. Uh, it was, I mean, there was a big part of me that didn't even want to have that in there. But <laughs> I just, I felt like it, it could be creatively used and I also felt like it might calm some people. <laughs> to be able to have that that blend of, of wet and dry, so to speak. But I mean, really, honestly, the Strega should be, I would say you really need to be, you, you should just run it at like at least 70% wet at all you know, times. Well, I, to my, I always, it's always 100% wet. The only time that I, you know, open it and I go dry is when I tune it. 
<laughs> That's true. Actually, that is a really good point. It is a good. It it is really useful for that. Because That's me. Because you know, to me, it's more like it's like going out naked. I will never go out naked. So why would I put the strega with no effect on it? No, 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 no you know, no soul in it. And I'm yeah, no, I agree that the tones don't sound good, but actually, I think the tones shine more through the strega, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. The yeah, the strega tones like fully dry is pretty harsh. Honestly, it's not a sound I would gravitate it's a sound. towards yeah, often. Yeah. I mean, I've sampled <laughs> it. I've used it quite a bit with the Waldorf, with the you know, with, in the quantum. Oh, with the quantum. As, yeah. Yeah, as original waveforms. Uh, for oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I can see that. I can see that for sure. Because then you're going to be putting it through a whole other set of processes. Exactly. Um, then it within becomes the an ingredient in another recipe, essentially. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> I, I will. I will just interject you to say that I. I do occasionally use the the thing on full dry, but not for the Strega tones, just for processing external audio because the overdrive is so good. Like as yeah, you're yeah, saying, you that's the synthy yeah, overdrive stuff. That. That yeah, that's uh, especially on a guitar, man. Uh, it sounds phenomenal. Can I ask you this, Terrence? Are you putting uh, any sort of like buffer pedal in front of it, or are you just plugging just guitar straight into it? Just guitar straight into it. Oh, okay. What do you? What pickups do you have? Uh, I've got a Fender Tornado. They're they're like atomic humbuckers. They're like super okay, yeah, hot, yeah. super yeah, yeah, super okay. hot humbuckers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can get you just going straight dry and just cranking all the volume up all the way. You get some really great overdrive out of it. That's that's. I, I will say for anybody yeah. listening, there's another really good use for fully dry on the Strega. Unfortunately, uh, you you you. You're gonna, you know how the world, the guitar world is. It's very, you know. <laughs> I come from it, and unfortunately, there's very little. It's just a few of us that are trying to open the gates a little bit and try to, yeah. but it's just oil and water for the most part. From what I've noticed, <laughs> you try to, you know. But you're right, and in fact, and I've used it the way that you say, and also the, the, at the base of the strike itself, there was the need of. Also being a process, not also, but being a processor, so be able to run stuff through it and give it a, you know, give it an entity, give it an entity, a, a personality, a, an identity more than entity. So give it an identity, a sonic identity that it wasn't that wasn't there before. And through the overdrive, through the through the you know through the delay and through uh, the modulations and whatnot. And I think that's what you know also makes the Strega you know an ever changing entity the fact that it's not just an instrument it's not just synth it doesn't pretend to be at all but it 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 can act as an active and a passive device you know it could be creating the sound or it could just gently massage something else that comes in or completely change it into something else like i say leaving it under the water for 30 years and then fishing it out you know I'll, I'll I'll add real quick to guitar. If there are guitar players looking to experiment with it, um, I, I know from personal experience, if you are playing a guitar that has um, more like vintage, old school kind of pickups, like for example, I have a Stratocaster. Um, I found that I I really wanted to have some sort of a a more standard guitar pedal in front of it, just to give it the right uh, guitars. Pickups are just so picky about their input stage and you're, you're not so much with the with your you know uh nuclear uh humbuckers 
those don't care as much, but for the Stratocaster type thing, it definitely seemed like it benefited from having a, a pedal in front of it that could kind of buffer the pickup and let you get the full sound of that into the Strega, uh, mm -hmm. just in case, because I, I, it, it definitely thinned out a little bit, but then as soon as I used a, uh, a, um, a pedal in front of it, it really let me drive the, the Strega hard and get the sounds that you're talking about. Yeah, they, uh, I, I found in general I have a Strat too that just uh, certain things don't play nice. Certain things a Strat just sounds kind of weak and thin through. And yeah, like having having like a good volume boost to pair with your Strat and anything, I just feel like is a good yeah. idea. It but really also, is. When actually. you say weak and thin, that's kind of like what the Strat is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Leo Fender got it right first try with the telly and, you know, well, maybe the jazz master, <laughs> but the telly was, you know, he could have stopped there and it's like, done. There's nothing to reinvent. That's perfect. <laughs> that is, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I, there is a place for that thin sound, though. I mean, there, there's so much. Yeah, yeah, music no, for sure. I'm just, I'm sorry. It. I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just trying to make fun of it. I agree. No, definitely. But I never gelled. I've tried several strats. I own several strats and never, I never clicked. The tele, I get a tele and put it on, play it, and it's like, holy crap, done. Done. Yeah. That's it. Jazz Master, same way with the whammy. It's just like, yeah, makes sense. But, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, they're very polarizing instruments in the sense that, it's not like I don't like certain, it's like everything else, you know, but in the guitar world, like you can't play, you know, Gibson and Fender and Ibanez. People will, you know, <laughs> people will There's burn There's some great off. Ibanez's out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have plenty of Ibanez, plenty of, no, not plenty of Gibson, a few Gibsons, but Fenders and Ibanez, you know, but you can't. You get, it's like, take your side, man. <laughs> you know what I used to play a lot of, I still, I don't think I can find them as much anymore, was an Italian-made guitar, the Hagstrom. Hagstrom mm. uh, is Swedish. Oh, it's Swedish, really? Oh, okay, I never I mean, knew have that. Have you I ever thought... met an Italian called Hagstrom? Alessandro yeah, Hagstrom? <laughs> Luca Hagstrom? I really liked those Hagstroms, though. They had yeah. a cool sound. They came um, back, actually. They started making them again. Did they? Oh, yeah? Yeah, in 2005. Awesome. Aaron North, the guitar player for Nine Inch Nails back then, actually used the reissues. The Swede and the Super Swede, which were like the Les Paul style. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they they had those things had some really hot pickups, or at least the ones that yeah. I had. Yeah, they like yeah. picked up radio stations. Hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, all right, so let's uh wrap this up. Make noise. the The Strega is five ninety nine available now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there is a compilation coming out. When yeah. is that coming out? In July. In July. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, Alessandra, you have a new album coming out as well, right? Yes, uh, June eleventh. So we're almost there, less than two weeks. <laughs> and that is the name of the album is. Is Scuro Chiaro. Okay. Uh, so it's June eleventh. Mute uh, on June eleventh. Very excited about and, that. And there's also three singles from that album have already dropped, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, three singles and yeah. three videos that I've done with uh, Marco Cicceri, uh, which is an Italian director. Um, and and uh, super happy so far with, with everything that has happened in uh, in association with the record. So I'm excited to to release it and you know not play shows for it. <laughs> you guys, videos are on YouTube. Highly recommend yes. checking them out. 
Yeah, 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 yeah very, very check them out. Yeah. Uh, and I know there's Strega on the album. Is there Strega on any of the singles, by the way? Yes. There's okay. uh, there's Strega in uh, in uh, Chiaroscuro, so the first the first mm. piece. And uh, in uh, not on the second, not on Los Pecchio, but on Verde, the last one that came out last week. Okay. Strega on that one, just because, you know, I mean, Tony, uh, once prototypes started being made, I pretty much had one right away, you know, in the format that they were at the time. And, uh, and obviously, what better way to test where we were at and what worked and whatnot that actually write and make music with it? So they were, you know, uh, permanently wired to my to my system, so I could actually, you know, be creative with them. Yeah. So if you want to go hear the Strega in like a musical context outside of like demo clips on YouTube, go listen to Alessandro's new singles. Uh, Tony, Alessandro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, pleasure. 